All right. So how do you make a cow float? Anybody know? Root beer, ice cream, a cherry, then a cow. I made you laugh. I know I did. <laughs> Sorry. I tried that one on Jolene yesterday. She said, eh. You know, some are good, some are bad. What are you going to do? Anyways, uh, all right. Well, uh, we uh, just finished a study of angels, and I hope you enjoyed that study immensely. Um, I think it's a good study. I, whenever I, I lead that study, I get a lot of response. A lot of folks enjoy it because we don't think about what angels are, who they are, what they do, what they have done very much. And uh, I think it's a great thing. One thing, I, if nothing else, I want you to get out of that lesson is that angels are real. Angels are involved in our lives. We've read that many times, Hebrews 1. They are ministering spirits sent to help those who are obtaining salvation. And so they are very involved in our lives, whether we know that or not. Um, we don't necessarily have the same situation we have in the first century, of course. New Testament uh, times, angels did appear to Mary and Joseph and others. And before that in the Old Testament, we saw how that happened. And that was needed to convey messages from God to those who were obedient to the Lord and who were uh, lovers of him and followers of God. Today, we don't have to have the, the direct messages per se, right? We have the word. We have what we need, everything in Scripture. But that doesn't mean that angels aren't real and they're not involved in our lives. You might say, well, you know, uh, I had a miracle. I know I had an angel involved in my life. And, and for you, that may be possible. I, I don't know. I can't say for sure what you, you experienced. But I know that God is provident in uh, my life. And if you're a follower of God, he is provident in your life, right? And he will answer prayers, and he will be involved in your life, and he will provide. You might say something like, a miracle has happened to me, and that may be good for you. I might say, well, it's just God's providence. The point is, God is alive. Jesus is alive, reigning in, our, in the kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, and that's very true. Don't ever let anybody tell you that these things don't exist. I believe fully in the providence of God that he is living He's involved in my life, and I believe angels are part of that, all right? Angels are all a part of that, all right? And moving forward into today's lesson, we're going to study something that's kind of a, a good little segue into it, is we're going to talk about the Bible. And, of course, how do we know about angels and God and, and Jesus? Well, the Bible, right? And we're going to look at some things to discuss how we know what we read in the Scripture is true. What we read in the scripture is right. It's valid, right? And uh, first off, let's, let's go to 2 Timothy and read a passage from there. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, all right? And uh, look at verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now those two verses right there basically say Scripture is from God. Okay, This Bible is from God. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired through the Spirit so that we can know who God is, His character, know about His law, know about His free gift of salvation that He sent through Jesus Christ. 
And then we also know through the apostles' teaching after that how we are to live our lives as a disciple, right? So we know the scripture is true. And if you try to say it's not true, then what's true, right? I've heard people say, well, this part of the scripture was probably something that was told in, you know, at the fireside or something. You know, it's, it's a fable or something like that. Well, if you're going to say that at one part, what can you say about the rest of it, right? These two scriptures right here say all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So if you're not going to believe the whole Bible, how can you believe these verses right here? It's not an either-or thing. It's, well, it is an either-or thing. It's one or the other. You can't have both, right? So how do we know for sure that the Bible is uh, from God that it is? Well, other than those verses, there are many other ways to tell that, right? And the question is, has the Bible ever been altered or corrupted? Uh, it's been a couple thousand years since Jesus lived on the earth, right? We have no original autographs or manuscripts that were written, right? All we have are copies, copies of copies, copies of copies of copies that were written down by hand. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to copy something verbatim? You think you might be doing it right, and then you get a couple pages, and you read back through it, so like you leave out words everywhere, don't you? Or have you ever written an email, <laughs> I've done it many times, and you thought you said something, and then when you read it back, you missed so many words that said something completely different. Yeah. It's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to keep the word the way it was in the original. So how do we know that we don't have significant changes or significant errors in the scripture that we have today? Or even further than that, how do we know that people didn't collude to twist the scriptures? in a way that they saw fit. Yes, sir. Good question. We're going to look at some of that. Probably, probably not today, but we're going to look at some of that eventually. But yeah, that's a good question. And you're right. As Bill says, there's a lot of other books out there that are not included in the canon of the Bible, right? That have been written, that have been discovered, and there's various reasons why they weren't included. Uh, some, like the Catholic Bible, actually keep adds the apocryphal books to it, and so forth. We'll look at some of that, uh, and that's very true. But Today I'm looking more at 
how do we know that things haven't been changed, right? How do we know that what we have today in, in, the, in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture, is what was, the, uh, what was basically the original, the original text that was written? And going to, to Bill's point, it's, my, it's not uncommon you might hear somebody say, well, the Bible was corrupted by, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, because they had it for so long. Or, or you might hear somebody say, well, uh, the Catholic Church is the only one that has the real Bible, right? And, it's, and things like that. So how do we know for sure that what we are reading is, is valid, other than what we read in, of course, in 2 Timothy 3 there? Well, is it possible to have confidence in the Bible? Can we absolutely read through the Scriptures and get the understanding of God, what He's revealed for us, to get the understanding of what He did for us and how we are to live? This confidence can come from a couple things, a couple things we want to have in mind. One is from textual evidence. We have evidence of things that have occurred over the centuries, right? Uh, we have evidence from other texts and from things that have been found over the centuries. And we also have, um, we also have other things relating to the translations, the guidelines that have been used to, to uh, create the translations and so forth. And we'll get into that a little bit. The earliest complete text of the Hebrew Old Testament is a, a text that's called the Masoretic Text. It was finished around 900 A.D. actually, but it was created. It was scribed, uh, Jewish scribes called the Masoretes, and it goes. It took many years to do that, right? But you can take that text, and that's pretty much what our Old Testament comes from. That Masoretic Text that was copied. You can take that text and compare it to Greek and Latin versions versions that are centuries old, and it's pretty much the same. Very little uh, difference at all. In fact, you also, you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947, right? Uh, in, in an area of, of Palestine, in that area. And they have figured out that those dated back to approximately 150 B.C. all the way up to 70 A.D. And when you compare that Masoretic text to what is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's pretty much verbatim. Very little change, very little difference. So there are things that have occurred in, in, our t in history, things that have been discovered that pertain to showing that the copies are pretty close, right? You also have, and I know you've talked about, there's the Greek Old, Old Testament, or what's called the Septuagint. This was the Greek version of the Old Testament that was uh, written around 200 B.C. before Jesus came, right? And it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was done around 200 B.C. by about 70 scholars, and it also confirms what's found in the Masoretic text. Very little difference at all. If anything, it might be just some things in phraseology, uh, nothing pertaining to what you need to understand from the Old Testament about God. So we have many, many different types of texts, many things corroborating uh, what we have today. And of course, when you hear anything about law, when someone makes a, a statement or an accusation in law, they have to have corroborating evidence. You can't just take somebody's word for it, right? Because somebody can lie, lie right through their teeth. In your outline, there's a, a quote from a gentleman that he, and Brother Copeland puts it in here. It says, a book called Can I Trust My Bible, written by uh, R. Laird Harris, who says, we can now be sure that the copyists worked with great care and accuracy on the Old Testament, even back to 225 B.C., Indeed, it would be rash skepticism that would now deny that we have our Old Testament in a form very close to that used by Ezra when he taught the word of the Lord when he had returned from Babylonian captivity. And if you know the story of Ezra a little bit, just to summarize, Ezra was in Babylon. 
Israel had been allowed to return. King Darius allowed them to return a few uh, hundred or so years before that. But they had come back, rebuilt the temple, and they had kind of fallen away from it. They weren't really practicing uh, the Levitical practices of, of, uh, the, with the temple and, and, and the sacrifices and so forth. They were pretty worldly, kind of like today. And so Ezra was uh, asked for his allow, be allowed to go back to Jerusalem to bring read the scripture, bring forth the scripture to read to the people of Israel again. Uh, and they did that, right? And we see that in Ezra. And he had, and the people stood up, remember, and said, "We we 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 understand. We want to follow." And it was a great period of, of a reawakening, sort of, right? And he even had, you know. Uh, the men who had married outside of Israel to, to leave the, the pagan uh, wives and so forth so they could uh, not be corrupted by pagan gods and so forth. And he brought the Jews back to what they uh, were to understand about the law, right, how they were to practice that. And so at that time, there were scriptures, not necessarily in one big text, right, of the Old Testament, but he had the books. And he was able to bring those back. And they, when you go back to, as we said, the, the early versions that go back, we can pretty much make pretty much understand that they are going back to exactly what Ezra brought back to Israel after the captivity. Well, how do we know for sure then that the New Testament, the books of the New Testament, are what were original? Again, we don't have any of the original autographs or manuscripts. What we have are copies, copies of the letters, copies of the Gospels that have been carried forward. However, Remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, and we have thousands of manuscripts of Greek text that's copied over. Third, if you look in your outline, he says 4,000 copies of Greek manuscripts, 13,000 copies of portions of the New Testament in Greek. Okay, There's probably a lot more. This, this outline's a little old. There's probably a lot more than that even that, you can, uh, that you have been found since. <clears throat> and you also have the location of these manuscripts. They're not found in just one place. They're found in various places. They had been found in Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Italy, and many different places. So they're not just one particular place where this is coming from, where all these texts are being found, where the collusion could occur, perhaps a group could get together and write them, right? Making that difficult to do. So you don't have one church or one religion providing all these manuscripts or all these texts. Uh, the dates of these manuscripts, several papyri, uh, Fragments have been found all the way back, dating back to 50 to 100 A.D., uh, and 50 to 100 years of the original. They have several nearly complete New Testament Greek manuscripts that have been found within 300 to 400 years of the first century. These manuscripts, that are, they're mentioned here, there's a few others too, but you have the Codex Sinaiticus, which is found near Mount Sinai, the Codex Alexandrinus, found near Alexandria, Egypt, and the Codex Vaticanus, found uh, at the Vatican, and Rome. <coughs> the variations of the manuscripts, we have this. The vast majority are very minor. You got some spelling differences, perhaps you got some differences in phraseology, but for the most part, any differences in these are minor. There is no difference in any of these translations that would affect the way the doctrine is portrayed in the manuscripts, right? You might have, and, and, and then further, with translations that have occurred since then, Usually, things like that are footnoted when there are differences. Those things are pointed out. In other words, you could say 
that in all these uh, earlier texts that have been found that we know of, less than a percent of it is a difference. Very little. And in the outline you might read this, compare, compare that to the Iliad. If you know your uh, ancient history, you know about the Iliad. If you know ancient literature, Greek literature, uh, that was written about the Trojan Wars with Greece probably around uh, late 8th century, early 7th century B.C., that far back. And most scholars would tell you there's five, over 5% a difference in the copies that have been made from what was original. So we have confidence that the Scripture has not been changed at all except for just some minor things right here and there. So there's no fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith that's been disputed based on differences in manuscripts. So it cannot be expressed any greater than to say what we have today can be verified, can be corroborated by the manuscripts that have been found within a hundred, few hundred years of the first century. All right. And there's a lot of other translations that have uh, been uh, made. Uh, there's more than a thousand copies and fragments in these other nations, uh, Syria, Ar Ar Armenia, uh, and the Gothic stuff, in the Ethiopic copies. There's 8,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was a Latin translation that uh, the first time that was done was a man named Jerome around 400 AD. There's been several versions of Latin translations since then, and there's very little, again, difference in what's seen in the copies. Also, you have some corroboration from the writers of the early church, right? We talked about before Josephus and some others. They're not inspired writers, okay? They're guys that simply wrote some things about Christians, about the history of what was going on, and they quote a lot of Scripture. And you can take those quotes and compare them to what we have now, and they're the same, or they're very similar, very little change. In fact, it's said that there are so many quotes from writers of the Greek New Testament that if you were to lose all the copies of the New Testament today you could piece it back together from all the quotes of Christian writers over the years and have exactly what we have today minus maybe just a few verses you certainly wouldn't have any differences in doctrine so the physical evidence is there what we have over time can be verified by things that have been discovered through the texts that have been found and as I said, there's very little difference, if any. It's just a minor spelling change, phraseology, something like that. Nothing showing that the Greek text of the New Testament has been changed. In fact, if anything, it shows that it's been preserved. So we have that as faith. Now, I know you don't, you don't have to take my word for it or Brother Coben's word for it. I mean, you can look these things up. You have the Internet now. There's all kinds of stuff on the Internet. I was doing that. This week, looking through some stuff on Google, trying to find some things. Don't look at Wikipedia, because that's just what people put in there. And I want to talk about that in just a second, too. But there is all kinds of stuff out there talking about how these copies have been preserved. And they're basically the same as what was there 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, uh, even before Christ for the Old Testament. Well, what's another way that we can corroborate what we have? We have a... We have a lot of translations of the Bible, right? Of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There was a Septuagint that I mentioned. It was a Greek translation before Christ came. And we have 
uh, many translations of those Bibles into every language, right? Some guidelines that have been set forward, or you might set forward for yourself, I think help us to understand, well, what should we be reading? What is the best thing to go by when we're looking at the Bible, when we're reading the Bible, right? Got to keep in mind, you should never read a translation that's written by one person. Because what are you going to get? You're going to get that one person's bias, right? And there are some out there. You might have heard of the Living Bible by a guy named Kenneth Taylor. I don't know if anybody else is around here, but that's, and it's really a paraphrase. It's not a verbatim uh, copy of the Bible. And what are you going to get when you got one person translating the Bible? Yes, sir. Who's that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that's a great uh, statement because we're going to talk about the Jehovah's Witness Bible in just a minute. But, yeah, excellent point. And you have to be careful about who's translating these, these uh, copies or who's translating the Bible to what we have today. Uh, you know, even though these people might be well-intentioned, thinking they are very, um, you know, serious about it, they are very uh, uh, believing in what they're doing, but they're going to have a bias if you're following just one person. So even though that's well-intentioned, you need to look at Scripture that, as Bill said, has been translated by a large group of people, right? Think about how our government was set up, right? We don't have a king. Now, some people may say, well, we do. I don't know about that. That's another story. But we have different sections of the government, right? Why is that there? So each can check the other, right? So you don't have one person's bias or one person's decision being done for all. You have people checking on it and saying, nope, that ain't right. I think this is right. And you have discussion and uh, perhaps some compromise, that kind of thing going on. And it's the same idea when you're translating Scripture. You need to be looking at a translation that's produced by a group or committee of scholars, right? with often maybe hundreds of experts that know the Hebrew and know the Greek. Does anybody in here know Hebrew or Greek? So that should rule you out on translating the Bible, right? But that's what we should look at, right? That's how it should be done. You need to be careful not to um, look at a particular domination that has translated a scripture. And there are some out there, right? There are some translations of the Bible that were done, basically, by a specific group, a specific denomination of Christianity. As Bill mentioned, Jehovah's Witnesses. They have their own version of the Bible, the New World Translation. And I'm going to point out a couple of differences in there. If, you ever, if you've ever studied it at all, it's very interesting. 
Look over at uh, John 1 in your Bibles. And let's read Scripture from there. John 1 and verse 1. And pay attention to the wording because I'm going to show, and then I'm going to read from the New World Translation and see the difference. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then if you go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now when you read that, obviously who are we talking about? Jesus Christ. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus Christ was in the beginning. He was the Word. The Word of God became flesh. God revealed himself as a man through his Son. Okay? We've talked many times about the subject of the Trinity, right? The one God and three persons. God, the Son, and the Spirit. But that is one God together. They were there at the beginning. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you have them? Yeah. They're using the New World Translation. That's probably one they use, right? New Joseph. Yeah. I'm going to read it right here, exactly what it says. So keep that in mind, what we're talking about there. Now I'm going to read from the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation. And this is, as, as Charlene is talking about, as Bill mentioned, John 1, verse 1. See if you can catch the difference. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was a God. This one was in the beginning with God. Did you notice any difference there? A God. Interesting. One word, actually one letter. A. And if you, if you look at it, the God is lowercase. Jehovah's Witnesses not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe Jesus the Son, Jesus is part of, is one with Jesus the Father. Now you can get into a whole discussion of their doctrine, but they have their own translation that they have created to point this out, and they changed words so that you read it that way. Look over at, um, let's see, where's the other one? Colossians 1. Let's read something from there. Hang it over there. Colossians chapter 1. Now from your Bible, let's read Colossians 1 and verse 16. Actually start at 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. We're talking about Jesus here. Invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now Paul's writing to the church at Colossae. This corroborates John 1, does it not? He's talking about Jesus being God who was there in the beginning with God, and he was God, and all things were created through him. He's talking about Jesus. So Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Well, wait a minute. It says God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's because Jesus is God. He's part of that trinity, 
the one God. Now, I know in our fleshly mind, sometimes that's a little hard to understand, right? But you have to understand that's what Paul's saying here. <coughs> what does the Jehovah's Witness version say? Let's see what it says here. We get over to Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, the things visible and the things invisible. Whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. Again, one word changes the whole concept, doesn't it? Joseph Whitner saying, he didn't create the heavens and the earth at the beginning, he created other things, right? In other words, he's not the same as God. He's a little g God and was able to do some other things. How, look how subtle that is. If you were just reading that, not knowing the differences, right, you might not even notice that, right? And it might make you think, well, wait a minute, what does this mean? And if you pondered it, you might think, well, there is no trinity. Jesus was maybe just a prophet, or he's a little God, whatever that means. Interesting how that could be different, right? And think about for a minute how one word can change the concept in this translation, yet through thousands of years, what we have today in our scripture is pretty much what was written at the beginning. Pretty hard to imagine that, right? All right. That's just the Jehovah's Witnesses. There are some other translations and things that you have to be careful about. It's uh, much better to consider a translation, as Bill said, that's been corroborated by hundreds of scholars. And as we talked about that, that way you have that back and forth, right? Well, I think this is the way that should be translated. Well, no, the Greek actually says this, or the Hebrew says this, right? You have differences in views. And through that, hopefully, everything shakes out into what we have today, and we have what God intended for us to have. It is hard to translate languages, uh, especially archaic languages like Hebrew and Greek. Um, anybody that's ever studied Greek will tell you it's the hardest language they have ever tried to learn. Uh, I've tried, I sat in a, when Owen Freeman was still here, he had a class one quarter, and I sat on it and I don't remember anything from it because it was way over my head. But it's hard to do that. It's hard to take one language and make it fit another because we use different phrases, right? We have all these different idioms and things that mean something that does has no, you don't see it in the other language. So you have to be able to parlay that into the new language so that it gets the same meaning. And it can be very easy to change that, right? That's why I want to point out that all these manuscripts through all these years have shown the same thing. And we have the confidence that it's what was written at the beginning. All right, well, what does that mean as far as us today, right? What should we be using today? I mean, if you, if you have a Bible app on your phone, uh, have you ever looked at how many translations of, you can pick from on there? There's like 50 or 60 at least on mine. Probably more than some of yours. Tons of different translations of the Bible that you can choose from. Basically, it's supposed to be saying the same thing, right? 
how do we know what version to use, right? Well, we're talking here mainly about English translations. I, I don't know. Does anybody have, have a Bible in here that's a different language? I didn't think so. So we're talking about English translations, and of course, what's the most common English translation that we know of, right? It's been around for hundreds of years. King James, yes. King James was commissioned by James I in England and uh, was finished around 1611. It's very classic. Uh, most scholars would tell you it's pretty much uh, close to what was in the original manuscripts that we have. Uh, it was a group of scholars that King James I commissioned to do this. King James had some ulterior motives around doing it. It wasn't necessarily because he needed an English translation. It had to do with the fact that the Catholic Church, he was trying to get away from the Catholic Church and all that stuff. Whole another story about history there. But the point being is that's been the translation that has been around forever, or for it seems like forever, yet it's very archaic though, right? In fact, when you read the King James Version, sometimes it's very hard to understand because we don't understand all the old English as much as, we d as they did then, right? There's a lot of things written there that we don't know what they're meaning exactly. Today we have this new King James Version, which is what I use. It was completed around 1982, and it's simply an updated version of the King James Version. It's pretty much preserved what was in the King James, but converted a lot of the Old English into terms that we can understand today. And that's why I use it. I like to have uh, the, the translation that's closest to the King James, but something I can read and pretty well understand. And I've never, I don't have, a, and we'll get into this in a minute, but there are other translations, but that's the one I try to use because I don't want someone to come up to me in class and say, you know, why are you using that version for? You know, pretty much with the King James, not much can be said about it other than that it's the original version everybody considers to be close to what we have in the old manuscripts. There are others, though. Uh, perhaps you've heard of the, you use, a, not heard of, you've heard of the American Standard Version. Anybody here use that version? Written, completed around 1900, 1901. It was a version that was converted by a group uh, trying to stay as literal as it could to the Greek, okay? Trying to stay close to the Greek and present wording in, you know, by American English, I guess you might say. Uh, and it's not used as much today as the new American Standard would be. New American Standard was a revision of the American Standard, finished about 1971. And it's a very good copy. It tries to stay close to the Greek. Just, it's very, and it's very easy to read. It is a little wordy, perhaps. And in fact, when I was uh, in high school, GAC, back in the 70s, um, that was the recommended Bible for us to use. So when I went to Bible class, when Owen Freeman was teaching me about the kings in the Old Testament, I was reading the New American Standard Version. Some of you in here may have had that same deal. I don't know. It was because that was a good version for young people to use when they're studying. The King James, as I said, is a little harder to read, and so it was something that made it easier for us to study, perhaps, or read. <coughs> then you have some other versions, some that have come out since then. Uh, you have the NIV, the New International Version. You have the New American Bible, which has come out since then. And a few others, it's not mentioned in your outline, of course, the Revised Standard Version came out in 1952, and this is another revision of the American Standard Version. And then you even have the ESV, the English Standard Version, which came out in 2001. And that's a pretty good translation. 
it tries to stay as close to the Greek text as possible and easier to read. In fact, I'm not sure what Kyle uses. Does anybody know? He did use the English. I know Scott used to use the English Standard Version. I'm not sure, but Kyle probably does too. It is an easy to, re to read, supposedly, uh, uh, version. I've never used it much, but it is a good version. All of these versions, uh, translations of the script of the Bible, I would say are okay to use. Uh, they've been translated using a group of scholars. I do want to uh, qualify the NIV a little bit. The NIV, and you may have some, some NIVs, and I'm not going to make you raise hands, but it is very something that's easy to read. It's written in a way that you might be just sitting down and talking with someone, okay? It's not so much following the Greek text exactly. It is a little, I, I don't know if the paraphrase is the right word, but it is, um, it has some phrases that are written in a way that you would understand it just if you were sitting there talking to someone. And so in that sense, it's a very good Bible to use for study because you can read it and kind of understand it. But there are some things in NIV that you've got to be careful about. I want to point a couple out here. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. And if you are using an NIV version, uh, you'll notice the difference here. In Acts chapter 8, this is when Philip is uh, meeting with the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch is reading from Isaiah, and he's trying to understand what he's talking about, and Philip preaches Christ to him. So Acts chapter 8, about 34, we see, reads, So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Answer said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. All right, that's from the New King James Version. Does anybody, well, I don't want to point anybody out. In the NIV, it reads a little different. Let me just read it from my, uh, my uh, Bible app here. <coughs> Let's see. And if somebody has it, they may want to read it themselves. Let me, here, I got it right here. All right. I'm going to start with Acts 8. And I'm just going to start at verse 36. Follow along in your Bible here. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both of Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Is that what your Bible said? What was in your Bible that I'd was different. Yeah. Verse 37 is not in the NIV. Interesting, right? There are some translation uh, versions of copies of manuscripts out there that do not have verse 37 on. But if you go back in time, you can read 
Some of the early church writers, as I mentioned, Irenaeus, who lived around 170 to 210 AD, and in Cyprian, quote that verse. It's kind of hard for me to believe these guys didn't read that from manuscripts that were written in the early church. Why would the translators of the NIV leave that out? Interesting, right? Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Let's read something else. Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 9. I got, got it backwards. We're running out of time. Matthew chapter 9, and let's read verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, the NIV reads this way. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A little difference there? They leave out the two words, to repentance. Now, you might think, well, is that a big deal? Well, understand the NIV was translated by what you might call a Protestant group, pretty much with a Calvinist bent, okay? And so perhaps the reason they're leaving 37 out in Acts 8 is because they don't want you to think that baptism is essential to salvation. Therefore, you, they don't want you to read that about whether you believe with all your heart. Now, I don't know if that's what the scholars would have said, here in Acts 9, sinners, God, Christ came for sinners, bring them to repentance. Perhaps that might was left out to show that you don't have to obey. There's nothing on your part to be saved. In other words, trying to present perhaps a Calvinistic view that, you know, faith only, faith alone, and perseverance of the saints and so forth. All right, getting too far into this right now. Conclusion, just understand that we can trust the Bible. We have manuscripts that are copies that are pretty much the same as what they were 2,000 years ago or older, and they're available from, with, uh, free from theological bias. Uh, we're going to get into more depth in Old Testament New Testament uh, things in the next couple of weeks. We'll continue to study through the end of July, and I hope it'll be a good one for you. Uh, Again, if you want to read some of this stuff, there's all kinds of information on the Internet to go out and look, about, look and, and read about this. All right, thanks for being here. Our time is up.